Hey there, boils and ghouls. Welcome to this week's episode of Hollow Weekly. And when I say this is a good one, boy, do I mean it. Look at the runtime of that. You know when it's over an hour that that's a good conversation that's about to happen. And believe me, it is. We had our first in-person interview, socially distanced, of course, with writer-director Tommy McLaughlin, lead singer of this band, The Sloths, uh, also about a thousand TV movies. That's not a lie. That's not a lie. Writer of George and I's favorite episode, Come to the Head of the Class, uh, Amazing Stories, Christopher Lloyd. Oh, you can watch it for free online on NBC's website. Go do it. And he wrote and directed a film that I think a lot of us probably have seen called Friday the 13th Part 6, Jason Lives. <laughs> so, so we were excited uh, for this episode. Also, want to give a quick shout out. Uh, our Swiss listener, Michelle, who is actually not Swiss. Uh, I like to look at our stats and see where people listen to the show. <laughs> and there's one listen in Switzerland. So I saw the review. Thank you so much. Um, and now I'm going to, I was looking at the map. Where else do we have solo listeners? And next door, I believe, over in France, we have one listener. So if you're listening to this and you're, <laughs> you're over there in France, uh, give us a five-star review. Let us know how you've been. See vous play. That's about the only French I know I failed French in college. It was an immersion thing. I got lost very quick. <laughs> but this episode with Tommy McLaughlin, this, even if you're not a horror fan, which I don't know why you'd be listening to this if you're not, just the sheer amount of Hollywood stories this guy has is through the roof. There's not one part of this episode you're not going to love, so sit back, enjoy, and stick around for the end. We got a song handpicked from Tommy himself that I think you're going to dig. It's a really cool one. And the cover art, look up the cover art. It's beautiful. So... I like I'm not gonna postpone this. I gotta do this right now because I am I am obsessed with. So how did you get involved with Amazing Stories and what? Because I don't think I think that show was basically it's been sort of forgotten. It didn't. I loved the '80s Twilight Zone reboot actually. I thought it had some a lot of strong work in it, but I felt like they were at the same time as Amazing Stories. And I feel mm -hmm. like so, I still occasionally hear Twilight Zone get mentioned, but Amazing Stories not so much except for now because of the the recent like. I guess reboot or something that's happening. Uh, Jordan Peele one. But there were some amazing things in there, but oh, yours. <laughs> How did you get involved with this? Well, I have to, you know, give full credit to the great and powerful Mick Garris. Okay. You know, he was involved with that. And Mick has always been, you know, very generous with all of us in this industry. Um, he's just, you know, really, he loves, you know, to, to share and get people involved in things that he's doing. Uh, whether it was Masters of Horror or obviously early on, Amazing Stories. So, um, yeah, we, you know, got together and collaborated on Go to the Head of the Class. Um, and then I ended up getting another thing. Um, what was that thing called? The uh, Such Interesting Neighbors. Okay. And, you know, the script ended up not being anything like <laughs> what I wrote. But, <laughs> you know, it was still interesting. It was much more comical than, than you know, what I intended with my draft. But... Yeah, that was it. It was Mech sort of inviting me into the boat and saying, you know, let's let's do this together. And it was fun because, you know, I would write a scene, you know, and he would write the next scene and then we'd switch, send, you know, the, the material to each other oh, cool. and then rewrite and send it back, you know. So it was a really nice collaboration. That's really cool. And then so did because it felt like Amazing Stories was there's this amazing moment in uh, uh, Autofocus where the agent goes to the guy playing Bob Crane, uh, Kinnear, who, who, and he's like, oh, it's the it's a concentration cap comedy. He's like, I'll, the, I'll never do this show. And the guy's like, no, no, it's first class all the way. It's like Bing Crosby production. So Amazing Stories felt like that. Mm -hmm. It felt like bigger budget, 
Like, which, was it a different experience as TV went, or was it sort of... Oh, yeah. Same? I mean, that first season, you know, all these heavy hitters, you know, in there. Right. You know, Scorsese, you know, one of my favorite episodes. What was that? Mirror, Mirror, I think yep. it was called. Um, and, I mean, there was just stuff that were, you know, you didn't expect these guys to be doing television. But, you know, Stephen's whole thing with the series, and the same thing with the others that I also worked on, you know, mm-hmm. with Mick, um, is that he would give it to the directors to do, you know, and basically... Right. You know, I want to see what you guys come up with, and if it doesn't work, then you know, I'll get in the editing room and discuss it. Right. But obviously, you know, it, that first season there was a lot of money. You know, so they, you know, I think you could see by the time they got to what they get three seasons. I Quentin? think I yeah. only know of two, but there might. Have been oh, it wasn't a lot. Yeah, it wasn't <laughs> a lot. Um, but you know, you could see, you know, the budgets were, you know, getting cut down and down and things were happening more in one or two locations and you know it didn't have quite the spectacle <laughs> the budget of the earlier ones, out. which should have been called like happens. sort of great stories yeah. <laughs> <laughs> pretty amazing stories <laughs> but yeah it's it, you know it was still exciting because it was like a network show doing something that was you know definite throwback to the uh, twilight zones and the night galleries and right you know all those you know great old horror anthologies Right. And what was, so what's super noticeable to me about Go to the Head of Class was, and this same thing is going to happen with Friday Six, is that there's this element of humor in mm-hmm. it, right? So the atmosphere, first of all, you are a killer, amazing atmosphere. There are so many images from sometimes they come back or go to the Head of Class or Jason Lives where all I see is leaves or rain or storm. It's like mm-hmm. perfect, right? In my head. But but there's also the humor. So mm-hmm. did you have to fight to get humor into these things or, or not so much? <clears throat> not, not really. And um, again, you, you know, you write the script and then there's, it becomes kind of, you know, everybody gets a chance to pee on the tree and mark the territory. <laughs> so there's a lot of stuff that, you know, kind of got lost or changed or whatever. So nothing is ever, you know, exactly as intended, but the tone is very much the same. Right. And Zemeckis got in there and, you know, he is like, you know, one of the best and he found, you know, things to, you know, take it all another level, but it all kind of fell back into that universal, you know, horror movie right. type thing. And of course, Christopher Lloyd was just so great, you know. I mean, there were just so many things that I know both Mick and I were going, was that the one we wrote? You know? <laughs> <laughs> wow. They, it's, it's, nothing's better than, you know, handing somebody blueprints and then suddenly you see the house and you go, that's, you know, I was glad did the blueprint to, you know. So, yeah, it's, it's amazing. And it's, you know, also that frustration for a lot of writers. It's like, that wasn't what I wrote, but, you know, I'll be happy to take credit for it. You right. know, but it, it's, right. you know, there's, it's really tough, you know, the, the writing process to try to keep it pure unless you also can direct it. And, you know, not to jump into Friday the 13th, but that was one of the great blessings is I had an executive producer, Frank Mancuso Jr., who basically, you know, let me do what I wanted to do. So what I wrote... I could get on the screen and what I like improvised on the set was the way that scene was going to go. So, you know, it's having that, you know, that, that wonderful, you know, golden ticket. Okay. Right. Just make, make the movie you want to make. We should jump to that. Cause so did you know the entire time or was this something you gradually realized that you had that kind of control or you knew from the jump? Well, the interesting thing, and, and a lot of people, I think probably know this. I mean, I initially did not want to have, anything to do with like a slasher movie or, you know, right. because things had gotten so crazy um, in this industry that if you wanted to get, you know, a deal to make a horror movie, you basically needed to find a forest or some abandoned area, have a, something to cover the villain's face 
and have mm-hmm. girls that would get you know cut up. Right. If you had that formula, you could get a deal. Right. And, you, and if you could make it for half a million dollars, all the better. And I was going around with all these kind of gothic horror, you know, things in my head. And One Dark Night, the first one I did, mm-hmm. was obviously very much in that, you know, Hammer, uh, Edgar Allan Poe, Roger Corman, all those kinds of influences in there. And that was the sort of stuff I wanted to do. So I turned down a lot of the, you know, slasher type, you know, horror right. movies. Then I wrote Date with an Angel, and then that became my obsession. I know I, I wanted to get a winged angel on screen. I wanted to, you know, have something that Frank Capra would love, and I... I was fortunate that I got to hook up with Capra and he gave me notes and, and encouraged me at times where I think, you know, this thing's never going to happen. And in the middle of all that came, you know, the Friday the 13th thing. (laughs) So, you know, I, one of these things is not like the other, (laughs) (laughs) but I, I had, I was very much, you know, I, I, I have kind of a split brain with comedy and horror, you know, and when I can put them together, great. Other times it's like, no, this has got to be pedal to the metal horror, or this has got to be straight out comedy. Right. So when I met with Frank man, Frank Mancuso Jr. um, I said, would you be a, you know, would you object to if I had a sense of humor with this? He goes, you're not going to make fun of Jason. I go, no, no, no. Jason remains the monster. And he said, look, what we need is somebody to come in here and bring (laughs) him back to life. You know, basically we fucked up. You know, we thought of, you know, part five was going to work and everybody was (laughs) thinking it was going to be cool. And there are a lot of big fans to that. And it it works on its own terms, certainly. Um, But at the end, you know, when Tommy puts on the mask in front of the mirror, people were like, Oh no, is he going to beat Jason? You know, and as a result, the box office on my Jason Lives, you know, got hurt. Yep. Um, didn't help that we, you know, were going up against Aliens 2 either. During that time. <laughs> so, I mean, you know, it, it just kind of was where that, where that happened, but, or why that happened. Um, so I kind of went in with this, you know, kind of like, if I can do it kind of the way I want to do it, and he goes, yeah, you know, do a treatment. So I, you know, ended up over at Hollywood Forever Cemetery, which is right next to, you know, uh, the lot at Paramount, right. and wrote this thing and handed it in, and they went, yeah, great, let's do it. Wait, so back I went up. right That's to perfect place to write a it script. At Hollywood Forever? Yes, <laughs> under Joey Ramone's. <laughs> yeah. That's incredible. Oh, yeah. what? Atmosphere. Yeah, if you, uh, if you go on YouTube and there's a, um, uh, a like I guess it's about six minute video in black and white called Legends Never Die, Hollywood Forever on YouTube. And it's me basically explaining how I wrote it, show you where I was doing it, how I did it all by hand, you know, and then it leads into the mausoleum where, you know, my my future plans are. Toss the script over the wall. (laughs) (laughs) Read that. Amazing. I'm actually kind of intrigued what you said about the hammer and the gothic side of it. Because it's weird. So first of all, I don't know. Maybe I, this is just my impression. And I'm wrong, but I feel like you're amazing with vehicles. You're also good at killing cars. But like every time, like the trains, the car, and sometimes they come back. And the the it's it's a beetle in Jason Lives, right? Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, Volkswagen Beetle. That scene is absurdly genius. But anyway, so so the cars or whatever. But the it the if I was trying to design what the atmosphere of so Hammer is like European castles, you know that kind of thing. What would American Hammer like look like 
it's a it's an evil figure standing on an overturned RV on fire. That's like American <laughs> Americana Gothic. Yeah, like that that shot is like the, the like Amer- it's American Hammer to me is how it feels, right? Uh-huh. So like the fact that you were working Gothic into it is really interesting because that you don't think of that with a with a Friday the Thirteenth movie necessarily, right? Are there more elements that are in there that that you could pick out if you rewatch the movie or? God, that's, you know, that's for other people to sort of see. I mean, I just kind of put in, in that movie, everything that I could think of that would be fun and entertaining to me, who loves horror, right. and making it mainly characters that you hopefully liked. So when they died, it was like, ah, oh, shit, I love that guy. You know, as opposed sure. to, yeah, kill that bitch! <laughs> yeah! You know, and that always kind of bothered me that, you know, it was yeah. all about making people that you didn't like, and so it was no problem killing them. Right. Um, but if, you know, if it was all done with people that were sort of, you know, good-hearted and, and also having a sense of humor about Jason, you know, oh, Jason's out there, you know, and joking right. about it, right. and then it ain't funny no more at a certain right. point. Right. So I just tried to have that kind of... Uh, you know, and I, it's weird to say, but that sort of 30s, 40s wise guy humor, which is, mm-hmm. again, I got from Howard Hawks and Preston Sturgis and, of course, Frank Capra, right. and kind of wove that in to, you know, a lot of the, you know, the gothic horror things from, you know, Hammer and, and, and uh, basically all those Vincent Price, Edgar Allan Poe movies that sure. Roger Corman did that I saw when I was like 12. And the characters, they're so relatable that you actually do care. I was... I was thinking about like the sh- the sheriff's daughter and her, when her friends like that whole scene when you're first meeting people whatever. Mm-hmm. There's that dialogue or whatever. But first of all, they feel real. <laughs> they feel like they really would like each other and mm-hmm. really would spar with each other a little bit. Yeah. Megan is uh, she's really unpredictable. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like like which in in a good way, right? So like yeah. you you that kind of one minute she's doing slapstick falls and the next minute she's like taking charge of the whole thing like yeah. whatever you need i'll get it for you yeah. like that feels like a real human being not mm-hmm. like a like a page thing but so you put the thought into i'm going to make these people real so when i kill them yeah <laughs> yeah you don't necessarily want to see them go you know i right. mean part of you is going whoa what an incredible kill like the back bend on the sheriff oh. but then on the other hand the man was going to throw himself into danger because his daughter was, you know, going to get killed by this guy. Right. So he immediately, you know, took action and paid for it. And a lot of the stuff along the way was that same kind of thing. Or uh, my ex-wife, Nancy, in the, you know, in the mud puddle, holding up the money in the American <laughs> Express card. You know, here, don't kill me. You know, here's my, you know. And then, you know, I had a pause after that happened when we were looking at the floating American Express card because I knew there'd be somebody in the audience that would go, don't leave home without it. <laughs> and the whole audience would laugh. And this guy felt like, you know, he just made the greatest, you know, improv ever. But, you know, I try to place those kinds of things in the movie because wow. the audiences were so vocal in those days. They really yeah. did, you know, converse with the screen. You know, which is, I miss that. incredible to yeah. think about. I never. I don't think I've ever thought about like from a director, writer, director's point of view. You you know you're trying to evoke emotions in our audience, but mm-hmm. to have something specifically interactive, mm-hmm. like as a trap in there, like I know someone's going to shout this. That's some Jordan level. <laughs> that's like forty <laughs> chest. That's like forty chest. How do you balance humor and, and horror? How do you? <laughs> I, don't I, know. Know. Uh, <laughs> I have no idea because it, 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 has, it has such a good pace to it it's not like comedy 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 like yeah. there, there's, there's like a jazz like rhythm to it where it just it just feels right like nothing mm-hmm. ever feels out of place with it yeah I think you know, having studied 
you know, Chaplin, Keaton, Terrell Lloyd, Harry Langdon, the comedies, as I said, you know, the 30s and 40s and stuff, you see these rhythms, you know, that they, they perform at, and you also see how, you know, there would be like some moment of that was heartfelt, and then suddenly there'd be some slapstick thing that would come, so your emotions are kind of going here, and then suddenly, wham! And it's the element of surprise, you know, what you don't expect, which really, you know, is what makes people love something. It's like, if you're going, I, I know what's going to happen. Yep, there it happened. It's, it's not fun, which mm -hmm. is what's so difficult about doing sequels because you have to, in a sequel, somehow, you know, make it feel like it's in that universe, but not exactly what the original was like and not go, you know, way off onto another thing like what happened with Halloween 3 is the audience, like, where's Mike Myers? Right. You know, and so, I mean, and as much as Tommy Waltz did a great job on that, People really wanted to see, you know, Michael Myers. So there, there's that, and I see that happen all the time in franchise films where you try to go, you know, way off. But trying to, you know, basically put in moments where things seem like they're get, just getting a little romantic or a little tender and then some comic thing happens or some horror thing happens. It really is just trying to, you know, make you feel like you're going one way and suddenly, wham, you go the other way. Mm -hmm. um, or you know, the, the whole thing of setting up a gag and everybody's laughing and suddenly <gasps> it's not funny anymore, you know, <laughs> right. that, that can happen. Right. Um, so it, it's, and many times, you know, you don't know until you test the film, you know, mm -hmm. to see how, how it went. And that was my big thing with Friday. It's like, I'm taking a ri big risk with the, with the fan base on this and I don't know if they're going to go for the comedy and all the rest of this. And Frank was going, don't worry, we're going to have a preview. We're going to bring them in. You'll see, you know. So we had this preview at Paramount. They had people standing in line on, along Melrose from like, I don't know, nine o'clock in the morning till like five in the afternoon. Wow. <laughs> getting drunk, getting stoned, you know, dropping acid or whatever they, you know, they came into that theater, I mean, toasted, you know, <laughs> to the max. And as soon as the movie started, <laughs> I mean, it, was, it was like a mob scene, you know, and it did not stop. I couldn't hear one line of dialogue through the whole thing, you know, and they were just reacting and getting, you know, so the roars would get louder or a little quieter. And, and so at the end of the thing, you know, I went up to Frank and I go, I have no idea how the picture played. He goes, are you kidding? They loved it. <laughs> and I go, really? And he goes, yeah, but we need three more kills. I said, right. How do you know that? And he goes, I, I just felt it. I just need three more kills. <laughs> just the inner rhythm. The yeah. And so it's like, okay, well, I didn't do Jason's father. And that's where Martin, the caretaker, was going to be, you know, the, his last scene. So I can kill him, I guess. And then <laughs> why we do that, I'll introduce, you know, two other characters that really aren't set up. They're just kind of, be, they're out in the, you know, the woods there. And he's proposing to her. And, and they have a little sense of humor about the whole thing. So it was like, okay, we can shoot that, you know, in Bronson, you know, park. And, you know, get the three kills in. And then we made a couple of the other kills a little more elaborate, like when Sissy's head gets twisted mm -hmm. and it actually pulled and you saw the neck stretch and then snap. And I mean, it was incredible yeah. effect. Yeah. But of course, you know, the MBAA cut all that out. <laughs> and I, God knows where those little trims are that, you know, that sure. you never found those. So it was, you know, it was trying to just up the, you know, the, the kill factor a little bit more. But everything else, you know, pretty much stayed, you know, as is. I would love to have that brain, like, calculating that, like, in the film. Three kills. That's yeah. my number. Yeah, I need three, three, three kills. kills. Yeah, that feels feel right it. in my heart. That's right in my heart. We're going to make that happen. So I'm intrigued by, I, I heard somewhere that they, that 
they were taking gore out of seven, but that the producers of six wanted more, like you said, more kills mm-hmm. and a little gorier, you know, et cetera. Is it, is, is that an accidental benefit of sh- making it a little more comedic that they're trying to put more kills in or they just want kills and they wouldn't have mattered if you'd done a totally straight movie, they would have wanted to add gore anyway. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I mean, I'm trying to remember on seven, uh, John Buechler's, you know, uh, one that I know they got, I mean, really taken the task on, on the kills, you know, because he's a makeup effects guy and he just <laughs> went for it. Right. And Kane Hodder's whole approach was like this heavy breathing and grab somebody and, you know, sure. and of course, if you've seen Friday the game, I mean, it's brutal. The violence in yeah. there, even I'm going, holy <laughs> shit, <laughs> you know, I mean, it just one, it's like, you don't stop after the person's dead. You keep on whacking away and cut right. and put them in fire and cook the head for a while. And I mean, it was like intense. So when that whole period, the MPAA was coming after us like crazy, you know, because somehow all the violence that was going on in the world was because these movies were out there Mm -hmm. affecting and corrupting. Um, And so, you know, we've got taken to task. And the most interesting thing about mine when I was getting, you know, down to the ninth screening for the MPAA, they were picking on the sheriff backbend. And I'm going, what? I mean, it's not a drop of blood, nothing, you know? Right. And they go, well, it's a cumulative effect. You know, by the time we get to there, it's so violent. It's so just, cumulative. <laughs> so it's They're not about men. the gore, you know? Right. You know, right. they just felt that was, you know, enough's enough. Right. So there, you know, it was just this thing of trying to monitor us, you know, morally somehow. On well, you stuff. got them with the other thing you were talking about. You were talking about making you care about the characters. Because I remember the first time I saw Jason Lives. When the when it was when it was wrapping up, I was like, "Someone tell her her dad's dead." Yeah, <laughs> because I was worried about Megan. I was like, "When is she yeah. going to get the news?" Like, so you do care about him, but that was a pr- particularly effective kill. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I can see why I rattled him a, yeah. l- a little bit. The MPA has got to be real. You know, usually like when like preachers are like, you know, they say like. Being gay is bad, and preachers are usually. I feel like the MPAA. I feel like they have walls made of human flesh. Like they're just like <laughs> these huge fucking sickos. But, but they're like, no, the backbend's too much. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. It's like true. the strict teacher in, in school that when your class goes out, they open the drawer and have like women's panties and <laughs> breathe or something. Right, it's like the exactly. ones that seem so straight laced and strict. All no. have these quirky little things that yeah, go on totally behind closed doors. They're repelled by first. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. For, absolutely for sure. <laughs> um, the um, the amazing Jason shot next to the sign of virtues listed. <laughs> yeah. What? So what, what? How did you even think of that? And like, what? What was the thinking behind it? Well, that I have to completely, you know, hand over to Joe Garrity, who was the okay. production designer. Um, when he created that thing, all, all I wanted was, you know, Camp Forest Green up there, and sure. that's it. And he goes, yeah, a lot of these places, you know, they have, like, little rules and, you know, things that are important to remember if you're going to be at this camp. Right. So, you know, he came up with all that stuff, and then I thought, okay, we've got to have Jason, you know, just <laughs> slow down a bit so that we can see all this stuff as he's heading on in there. Right. So there was a lot of that sort of ironic, you know, humor, yeah. um, the, you know, and trying to let the audience think, no, wait a minute, he's just burst into the, the girl's cabin 
and he's walking there and it looks like he's looking for the victim, you know, right. but in my mind, he's looking for Tommy, you know, right. where's Tommy hiding? And then he feels something and he focuses right in on, you know, little Nancy Ann there. Mm -hmm. And then there's this, you know, question, why doesn't he do anything? And right. so many different great fan, you know, uh, theories. theories about, you know, sure. what, what is that? Is it because he's relating back to when he was a boy and, you know, did he have a crush on a little girl look like this? Or is it just that she's innocent that, you know, he just finds that so fascinating, right. you know, you kind of can write whatever you want. Yes. I do have, you know, a theory and it, it will be something that will come back at some point when I get a chance to, you know, do my sequel to this sure. that I've written. Yes. Um, so some of these questions I'm trying to see if I can, um, answer, but in a different way. Totally. Like the whole Jason's father thing, I completely right. went different from what everybody right. thought. Oh, Jason's father's a guy, you know, Elias, and he's this muscular guy, and he beat Jason, and he beat his mom and right. stuff. And I said, no, that's that's the woman, that's the man that the woman married. It's not Jason's father. No. Jason's father was the guy that I set up, you know, in mine, right. which is a whole nother kind of a just pure evil, you know, sure. type character. So it's like we all mess with the storylines, mm -hmm. you know, and you can see trying to get a, a timeline through all these things and stuff, forget it. No. I mean, <laughs> you know, the masks always change. I mean, always there's something that everybody wants to go in there and, you know, make it theirs in some way. And there's, it, it, that's, that's why, like, it, there's the rarity of, of a scream where you have someone kind of, you know, piloting the ship all the way through each installment or whatever. You, if you don't have that, you're just not going to have that kind of continuity. It's impossible. Yeah. As much as you want it, to, yeah. You're just yeah. Not, it's not. That's not going to be there. Which is which is interesting. And that's one of the things I loved about like the fact that not only did you care about, but there's real menace. There's a real edge in that whole. Not only him threatening the the children, like or that threatening presence with children that young right but also kind of almost the dismissive like humans or flies to jason way he's killing some of the people mm -hmm. in this movie like there's real menace in that right which yeah. is which you need to balance because if it's going to be comedic you need something heavier and that part is there which is why like the head pushing destruction rv scene mm -hmm. is so genius right because it's like you don't expect that like what a horrible way to go <laughs> really. you really left your your imprint on the world <laughs> you made your mark yeah i made your mark <laughs> um, but um all right so the gravedigger tell me about the gravedigger because i'm a big hamlet fan i love when gravediggers show up in movies the the, the martin the caretaker yeah. you mean um yeah, yeah sorry i mean he he was exactly what i was hoping i would find you know somebody that had this kind of gnarly voice and uh my cause and I, who Paz is the one that I wrote uh, One Dark Night with, mm -hmm. and so I named Tommy's partner Haas oh, cool. as a you know a tribute to him. Um, but we used to work at this projection room on Sunset Boulevard, and there was a guy in there named Martin Nosick, and he's actually in One Dark Night um, as 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 a you know caretaker of a cemetery. So I wanted to find somebody that was like that, and you know. He was great. Right. Um, and so the, the whole point was, is, you know, he's a guy that just was supposed to kind of take care of the grave here. And, and then, you know, he, you know, sees that somebody dug him up and, you know, <laughs> that yeah. it was going to be his job and stuff. Sure. But I had it then pay off at the end, you know, when he's when Mr. Voorhees comes in and and he says, you know, yeah, I, I've been taking care of him, you know, just like you wanted me to and stuff. Right. 
and then the interesting thing is, I, I, for those of you out there that seen Vengeance, you know, the mm -hmm. Friday the 13th fan, fan film mm -hmm. that they did, um, it opens with me and my, my Jason, CJ, who's playing Jason's father, and I'm the caretaker, Walt, you know, and I'm saying to him, yeah, look, I've taken care of the, your grades. Just like, you know. <laughs> right. So, you know, they asked me, if, you know, was it all right to take the Jason's father idea and run with it? I said, yeah, yeah please do it. You know, That's I'd so love cool. to see somebody do it. And right. it was just so much fun to do a scene with CJ, you know, at the oh, same wow. time. It was, it was just great. So they're doing a sequel. That thing was so successful that they're doing a sequel to it. So Walt the Gravedigger will be returning. <laughs> Vengeance. Um, can't tell you what is going to happen. And maybe, maybe I really don't even know yet. But because <laughs> spitballing enough. some different ideas. But, you know, I, I just had a ball working with all these guys. They were just... You know, they were so passionate about, you know, the Fridays and really right. wanted it to feel like mine, that look, that feeling from the 80s and all that stuff. And so, sure. you know, it was kind of a, you know, honor to be on the set as an actor yeah, and not having so to worry cool. about all that other shit, you know. <laughs> and if they want to shoot it remote, you could teach them. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> we can speed up production yeah, on, this, on this. What a relief not to have to, you're just there, just do the acting. And <laughs> that's amazing. Um, I, I'm, I'm intrigued by how much covering up of things is happening in Jason Lives. So they've renamed Crystal Lake, mm -hmm. right? The great the the caretaker is hiding the evidence of, you know, shenanigans mm -hmm. with the grave, right? Yep. Like I feel like there's a lot of enabling of Jason going, <laughs> going on. <laughs> is this like what was the thought behind the renaming and and kind of that that feeling of how do you because it's a problem to solve right you have to realistically sort of make people believe that people are returning to this camp again yeah <laughs> right exactly it's, that's right. exactly the thing i mean i i only saw part one which i really liked mm -hmm. and the other ones all kind of came at a time when there was so many other imitations of it and i just kind of like i don't know it, it just didn't you know make me feel like I wanted to go and see them because it, it sure. so many of them felt like they were just right. kind of redoing what was already there. Right. Now, when, when you look at the long run of the whole thing, you know, the franchise amazing, you know, yep. the fact that it, it just kept going so long. And even at, by the part six, I was going, all right, this is a fran what other franchises lasted this long? Oh, James Bond. Great. So I'm going to do the Bond <laughs> thing at the top. So right. there'd be that sense of humor right, right. from the beginning. And, the other thing was I, when I watched all the Friday the 13th back to back, you know, because they had mm -hmm. me go into a projection room at Paramount and just start at the beginning, go all the way to part five. Wow. I was just, you know, making notes and going, okay, what tracks, what doesn't track, what would make sense or not make sense. And I always tell people there's, you know, there's movie logic and then there's real logic. <laughs> and lots of times you can get away with all kinds of shit, like the, you know, the, the face into the side of the RV. Right. I mean, you know, her face would crunch. It would not go. <laughs> but, you know, everybody buys that because it looks so cool and you kind of right. let go of it. But I kept thinking, you know, all right, there's been all these killings and stuff. Would I ever let my kid go to Camp Crystal Lake? I mean, no. <laughs> so the town basically did, you know, what they thought was a smart thing. We'll just take Crystal Lake out of the equation. Right. We'll say, I don't know, and let a few years go by, and this is Camp Forest Green, and no, no, nothing has gone wrong here. Right. And so that was sort of that, their way of kind of covering the past. But obviously, this young generation, you know, learned about that dark past. And so they keep bringing it up. You know, come on, Dad. You know, everybody knows it's, you know, sure. Crystal Lake or, you know, he or Tommy says that to him, too. I think it was still, you know, right. it was still Crystal Lake to him. Um, and to me, that's 
that was part of it too, is the, you know, the fire horse going back to, to the right. station and it knows exactly where to go. Um, and that's what Jason was doing is heading right back to what he knew, you sure. know, from the past. So I was trying to somehow make some of the things more, at least in my head, a little more logical mm -hmm. and then take artistic license when I had to you right. know, in other places. That's really interesting because I mean, they're covering up in some of the timelines, obviously it gets squishy there too, but they're also covering up the memory of Freddy Krueger. Like you see horror having to do this a lot. I didn't think of it as like a filmmaker problem to solve, no. but I guess when you sit down and watch all of them in a row, like you did, you're like, uh Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I wouldn't send my kids there. So <laughs> got to figure this out. That's really, yeah. I mean, cause the first, you know, sort of like, you know, kick your head back was, you know, part two when suddenly, you know, this little boy that looks so cool, right. you know, and, and, and there was, when it was such a shocker, you know, mm -hmm. in that kind of carry, Esque, you know, way. Um, suddenly we jump, and you know, now he's full-grown man, you know, with a sack over his head, and yet um, the uh, oh, why am I blanking on her name? A uh, Adrian, um, who did what? <laughs> Adrian King. Adrian King. Yeah. Thank you. You know, she's back, but she looks exactly the same. You know, right. age and everything. So you're going. Okay, either she's aged really good, or something <laughs> has shifted here, and you know, and people come up with all kinds of theories. And it was literally they just wanted to make this guy scary. They didn't want to make a scary little kid. They wanted to, you right. know, be a grown guy and and have his, you know. To me, it was like the Elephant Man. That's all that I thought of when I first you know, saw it. Is no kidding. You know, kind of a you know borrowing from that. Right. And to me, that was like okay, it it kind of worked on its own level, but it was. You know, that timeline thing just never totally. really could make sense. Totally. Um, but then once, obviously, the, the joke with the hockey mask, then, then it stuck, and it kind of became now the iconic image of horror. Right. And you just have to... I was watching, you know, when we used to be able to go to movies, you know, <laughs> yeah. the, the, the thing on AMC uh, theater chain, and they would have all these different kind of images come up, and the one for horror was the Jason mask. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And it just is sort of, you know, representative. Well, now. you called it from the James, by relating it to James Bond. It's one of the very few icons where you just need a silhouette mm -hmm. or a shape, and it's, you know, everything you need to yeah. know right there. You know, Freddie's is... hand, you know. Yeah, the, yeah. You know, you know those those '80s monsters were were great, and I think whole generation now kind of kind of looks back and goes, you know, why don't we have you know ones like that? Right. Well, you know, Pennywise now coming on the big screen has kind of fulfilled that. Mm -hmm. And you know, we'll see in time, you know, how so, how long they. Survive. We've had this discussion many times. Yeah. My 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 most recent icon that because I loved the movie and it, it emotionally impacted me. Actually, this is weird, but. Is Black Phillip from The Witch? That was the last like image where I was like, "This is you, Sam from." Sam would yeah, was... Sam would be like the last pro. I always judge by how much like cheap merchandise comes out during Halloween, where they can just mass produce it. And in fact, this year, Spirit Halloween, there was like Sam mugs, right. and I'm like, he's made it. Right. Yeah, <laughs> he's, he's, he's it. No one's coming to my door asking for candy dressed as a goat yet. So not I, yet. There'll be one person. <laughs> and you don't give them candy. You no. just give them butter. Just a ton <laughs> of butter. butter. Yeah, they'll get it. They'll, they'll love it. The parents will be pissed. <laughs> Salt Lake or something. <laughs> <laughs> um, the, yeah, I'm so you. You're you're. This is the part of the where we're talking to you where you're just going to correct me because I have a feeling you're the only person who's done certain things. I don't think anyone else has read books in an attempt to defeat Jason, right? But I feel like Tommy is pulling out tomes in this. Yeah, like he's got an occult book. He's got yeah. 
It looks the like Dead a Rise book, right? Like <laughs> I've never seen anyone study to be Jason, so I thought that was unique. I think you're the only one who's poured beer on Jason, or maybe you didn't. Yeah, maybe. well, it's actually, you know, like Diet Coke or something, or or, oh, or yeah, something yeah. that looked like it was supposed to be that. Right, but, yeah, right. it was like soft drink. And I don't know if we we didn't see it hit him, so I don't know if it hit him, but. Hopefully it did. <laughs> You're the only person who poured beer on Jason. That's <laughs> um, young kids. I don't yeah, think they've little been kids, no, by, no, that right? didn't happen. So that was a. I mean, there are a lot of firsts involved here that I just find fascinating. And then my contention is that Ron's character from the beginning is the smartest character in the entire timeline. Like he was right the entire <laughs> the whole thing. Like he was really like he had this figured out. He had it clocked. He knew it was wrong. The only bad thing he did was go. Yeah. <laughs> Other than that, he kind of was, you know, like, you know, in the all there. In, in the knowing of. Uh, are there other firsts? Are there other things where you're like, I, I'm, I'm going to pull this off, and I'm going to be the only one that pulls this off for this, for this. Um, well, I guess what I've answered before is I wanted to put a car chase in there because I, you right. know, there hadn't been one of those, and then I go, well, I don't want to just do it normal. Let's have her drive in reverse, you know, <laughs> and see if we can get away with that. And if I'm not getting away with that, then Tommy's going to be down on her lap and going in and out, you know, down there. Um, you and, put it in reverse? That's yeah. amazing. I, I want to see your French connection. This is going to be amazing. Okay. <laughs> and, uh, you know, and then, of course, had the, you know, the humor aspect of, you know, she goes, oh, this is going to be a hairy turn, and he's down, down right, on her right. lap. And, I mean, you know, bad sophomoric jokes but to me it was like trying to you know have fun with this whole idea that yep. it was something a little different then of course the big thing was you know the underwater fight because right. that was very difficult to pull off you know we had to shoot it at the actual lake we had to shoot uh, at usc in the big uh, olympic pool to do you know the actual you know fighting and the stuff underwater there mm -hmm. and then came to the problem that we had to grind up his head Right. Of course, USC is like, no way you're going to put that in gut. <laughs> so I make a phone call to my dad, and I said, you know, is there any chance we could use the fool? And he goes, yeah, come on. My dad was a USC film grad, wow. you know, back in 49. So he loved that the film crew were in the backyard, and he oh, was out there with his little, you know, Instamatic camera taking pictures and stuff. So he didn't care that the whole filter got fucked up with Jason, <laughs> Jason Brains and, <laughs> you know. Jason so it, so it, was, it, was a, it was a challenging thing to kind of, you know, pull off sure um but yeah the interesting thing too about the you know you brought about you know reading about how to do this mm -hmm. is that i always feel like it's so easy for people to go well you know in ghosts stories you know they always have to be buried they'll go back you know like poltergeist you have to go back you know sure. you can't just take the headstones if they're down there they're going to be unrested right so i wanted tommy to just quickly go all right this isn't right this shouldn't happen you can't bring a human back to you know, back to life with a lightning bolt, right. all the stuff. So he goes into the occult study mm -hmm. and sees this thing about returning somebody to where they died originally, you right. know. And I thought rather than getting back in the grave, put him where, you know, where he's supposed to be, back at the bottom of where Crystal Lake. the hardest Lake. possible thing to shoot. That's <laughs> but it was, yeah, I mean, so that kind of, I guess, created a first. But I was looking for just things that felt to me like, we, they hadn't done this, and this is sort of cool. This is kind of pushing the edge of yeah. the envelope a little bit. But again, I didn't know if people were going to buy it. I didn't know if right. they, you know, the, the humorous aspect of it was going to you know, actually play off. Um, but you know, much to my shock, here we are 34 years later, something, yeah. you know, <laughs> right. and people are still going, yeah, that's my favorite. Right. That was the first one I saw and stuff, yeah. and, you know, because they, they discovered this stuff on and VHS. And it's completely and, unique in the timeline. Like, it's, it's my favorite of of the of the franchise but 
it's also just like so, I, we do this a lot on the podcast where uh, my one of my weird ways to judge stuff like this is if I remember it I just have a terrible memory but I get a really vivid memory for visuals or things that I really enjoy. I can even remember like the weather or the date, like stuff like it's yeah. weird, but like the visuals from this movie are just burned my brain compared <laughs> to a lot of the franchises where there, and a lot of them have all their own greatnesses and stuff. But like I can picture two images from Takes Manhattan, like tops. Mm-hmm. Know, right? so, <laughs> I, so it, I, that part amazes me. Well, I also came from the school of, you know, you paint with light. You know, you right. don't just light the thing and then, you know, let the gore or let the comedy play. To, right. You know, do something with it so you're creating a tone and there's something in the shadows that you, you know, sense but you don't necessarily see. And so, you know, oh, John, yeah. John Cranhouse was great, you know, doing exactly the kind of stuff that I wanted and, you know, give him full credit because, you know, he had the lighting, he had to pull it off. And so, it, you know, it, it does make a difference, though, if you're going in saying, this has got to look like it was painted, not like it was, was just... Was he doing yeah. all the light changes on Jason's mask when he was hovering over the kid? Yeah, was, everything, oh, you know, amazing. and, you know, and of course, you know, the the grip and the gaffers and everybody were, were working on, on stuff, whether it was shadows of branches or right. you know, the big, you know, um, the huge uh, arc lights that we were lighting the forest with where some guy had to stand up there all night long <laughs> and keep trimming those things, you know, keep burning the carbon up there so those things would, would light. So that was That's like incredible. good old days of filmmaking. That and- reminds me of... Um- uh, we watched who was it Anna, Anna Wintour documentary, and she would look at a piece of clothing, and she would always talk about texture. Mm-hmm. It has a, the, you know right. the texture of this, the texture of that, and I think with like uh, coming to the head of the class and Jason Lives, they have that texture. So it's never like some films just have. I don't want to call it like a boring look because no nothing has like a truly but boring look. But yeah. but it has like a flower look. Whereas this like like you can like you can hear like you can feel the rain, you can smell the rain, you can like you can feel yeah. the wind. Like it has that texture, and like yeah. mm-hmm. I think pulling that off is like that's like a. It's a pretty goddamn hard skill to knock out. Like, not a lot of people can do that. Right, and being brave enough to throw things in there and not knowing how the audience is going to take it. Like, throwing those hammer grace notes in where Tommy's doing, like, Van Helsing research. (laughs) Right. Like, right, like, where do you ever see this in a a Friday movie? Like, it's uh, kind of amazing. And not how is the audience going to take this? Like, you don't know. I find that. Yeah, I I just always get bugged when it's like, how did did that guy know that? What's in his background where he suddenly understood this sort of mythology or whatever? (laughs) But if you see him, you know, he's got three books and he opens the first one, bam, cut out. You know, did he read, you know, speed read the other ones? Did he find what he needed on that first one? We don't know. I don't care. As long as I can say to the audience, he got this information from someplace, you know, didn't just, you know, born with it. Right. So, you know, those, those kinds of things, as I said, are just for me, I always want to somehow justify, you sure. know, a character's understanding about something. It's so satisfying, too. Yeah. Because cause if you don't have that, that's the first thing you mention when you walk out of the film is, well, how did this guy know that? How did yeah. this guy know this? But when right. you get those little bits of information, you're like... Okay, yeah. No, makes sense. Well, that explains that. Or that's all I needed. Or even subconsciously, you just don't bump on it, and then right. it's a smooth ride, whereas other ones, you bump on things, but you don't even know why, and you walk out not satisfied because you were like bumping on the... Mm-hmm. You mentioned like, a good thing, too, about the, the texture of a film, because mm-hmm. that is a real big thing for filmmakers to try to have that, that feeling that you can you know feel, smell, almost taste certain things. Sure. And last night, I, I saw and, and blessed the... 
uh, release of the uh, Blu-ray version of Jason Lives. Oh, and they, wow. you know, they, uh, the thing that Shout Factory is doing, and yeah. the producer sent me the thing. Cause, and first off, he showed me the Paramount one and then what they did, and I went, no, the color, and neither of those are quite right, and gave a couple of notes, and then I got a copy of it last night, and mm -hmm. I went, this is the most perfect it's ever looked and felt. So, so those cool. of you out there that end up having to, you know, put out, you know, I don't know how much they're charging for that box set, 150 or something. <laughs> there is so much stuff you will, I mean, there must be 12 commentaries running through the, the film at wow. any given time. You can hear from, you know, CJ, you can hear from wow. Vinnie Gustafaro. You know, I think two or three of them are mine, right. you know, and it's all this stuff. And then I just did a new interview, you know, from the sure. cemetery or, the, or from the uh, mausoleum right. uh, where my, my crypt is, and <laughs> as well as, you know, that thing I mentioned, uh, Legends Never Die, uh, Hollywood Forever, mm -hmm. that is going to be in there as well. Amazing. Plus just a shitload of other stuff on all the movies. So it's, it's awesome. quite a thing for the fans who haven't had a new Friday right. in 10 years. At least this is something to look forward to. When does this, do you know the October. 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 Yeah. <laughs> Obviously. <laughs> yeah. Wow. I'm going to be sitting here watching this when someone dressed as a goat comes and asks for candy. <laughs> that would be, be perfect. That would be yeah, perfect. Hopefully you're right that somebody will show up at the door. <laughs> That's very true. Yeah, true I'm, yeah. I'm terrified. This is, you know, I finally got a house in Burbank, you know, the, yeah. the neighborhood. And they go, wait till you see Halloween. Hundreds of kids, you know. <laughs> I'm going, great. I can put on a whole show again like I love to do and stuff. But then, you know, this fucking virus, you know, I could see parents going, no, we got to sanitize every piece of candy that's yeah. put in the thing i mean yeah i mean we're you know we're in that dog reminds me right of now. emily catalano the stand-up comedian she she was doing a joke where she was like um i i was deciding am i going to continue with a stand-up comedy career and i asked guy like give me a sign and then you know the covid thing happened and all my shows have been canceled so i you know god must be too busy to give me a sign so i'll just, <laughs> I'll just wait for, <laughs> he, he moves there he's like ready for halloween yep. like, okay that's what Burbank is pretty wicked during Halloween it time. Is. Mm -hmm. It is actually. Mm -hmm. Well, Glendale is too. I mean, when I when I lived here, I mean, th there would be buses on Kenneth Road, you know, That's that would show up, crazy. and you know, and all these kids, you know, you know, would come out and into the neighborhood, you know, no parents, no nothing, you know, <laughs> hundreds of kids, you know, right, right. roaming the streets. It was huh. it was it was special, and in those days too, uh, I was friends with uh, Valerie Bertinelli, who I was mm -hmm. doing TV movies with, and Eddie Van Halen, so. Little Wolfie, you know, who's I think he's got his first album coming out. <laughs> you know, his first trick or treating was you know in the Glendale neighborhood, wow. and you got you can't imagine the faces of the parents. They'd open the door and trick or treat, and they're feeding the kids the the, the candy, and they look up and they see Valerie Bertinelli and Eddie Van Halen, <laughs> and it's like you know those aren't masks. That's the real article. <laughs> it was just great to go trick or treating with them. That is that is amazing. <laughs> Do you usually go crazy with the like? You say you put on a show. Like, what do yeah. you mean? Like, what kind of show? Like, what does that mean? Like during Halloween, like you have like a big. Like... Uh, well, there were years where uh, my good friend Stephen Banks' brother Alan would spend a month constructing these mazes at his place that were so elaborate. These walkthrough things that would go in through the house and out the backyard and through the garage, and I mean they were long, and they would get all of us in costumes and things. And there would be, you know, lines down the block of that, you know, people would come every year to see, you know, that show, uh, including Eddie and Valerie. Um, and then as the years went on, it just got to be so much work that everybody started kind of putting on their own thing. So 
you know, I have Jason's coffin, so I would drag that out and put somebody in there, right. fog machines, you know, light the place up. You know, it's all kind of, you know, very low budget. Sure. But, you know, for little kids, it was like, you know, they were terrified. And for the ones who knew what these different things were, right. you know, it was a very cool thing. So, I, you know, I was planning on coming up with some big thing to do in Burbank, but... <laughs> You know, I guess I'm going to have to wait till next year. Yeah. My feeling is everyone next year has no excuse. You've had a whole year. <laughs> it better be the well, most yeah, elaborate. Yeah, I, and the other thing is it's going to be totally nuts because you're going to yeah. have two years of pent up mm-hmm. <laughs> wanting to have done this party thing. Like, yeah. It's going to be nuts. It's going to be a while. Which would be kind of cool. Well, mm-hmm. what's interesting is we were talking about like the humor and how we care about the characters and Jason Lives. And... The only other Jason film I think I really cared about some of the characters was Jason X. Mm. And I th- but the, I think the thread through that, though, is the humor. And do you think humor uh, helps us care about the characters more? Yeah. I mean, I, I learned that um, from both Chaplin and, you know, going back, you know, Frank Capra, too. You know, if, if you laugh, you like you know, somebody mm-hmm. can make you laugh. It's like, you know, that's great. And I mean, you know that with friendships and stuff, you know, who do you want to be around? The people that make you laugh, right. you know, and there's something about that. So you try to translate that onto the screen in some way that they either say something witty or they're just one of these people that just have such a, you know, humility about them that you go, oh, that, that, I, God, I wish I was like that. Or right. man, my, my ex-boyfriend would used to be like that. And I miss that than this guy that beats the shit out of me. <laughs> <laughs> It, there, there's some qualities that some actors have that they're just likable. You know, they don't have to do much of anything. Yeah. And then there's other times that you just want to make them just a little smarter, a little more witty than we are in life. You know, that yeah. it's like, God, I wish I could come back with that, you know, kind of thing like he did just then. Right. You know, so, you know, the humor comes from, you know, those, those types of things. So that you do sort of go, you know, oh, yeah, I want to hang with them. I don't want to right. see them gone now. They, you know, they, I enjoyed right. them in the movie. And it gets across so much with so little that, mm-hmm. that because there's a surprising amount of brutality and like authenticity and dark themed stuff in Capra in like safety oh, yeah. last. Are you kidding me? Like, like a quarter of that. Yeah. Whole I movie. mean, it's a wonderful life. It's about suicide. You right. know, <laughs> <laughs> like, you know? <laughs> it's totally true. And then Buster Keaton, like. Or, you know, if you're, you're watching Chadwick, you're watching Modern Times, he's getting eaten by gears, he's getting tortured <laughs> by his boss. Like, this is not... They weren't pulling a lot of punches. It just feels like that to a modern audience because it looks old-timey. But mm-hmm. it was actually rougher than... I mean, they were doing their own stunts, like, a lot of times. Like, that was a real... Oh, yeah. You know, I mean, thing. yeah, because you didn't... You know, obviously CGI and all these other ways of, you know, getting out of situations, you know, right. you couldn't. You had to just do it, you know? The Keystone right. Cops... You know, they would be breaking bones and, you know, permanently, you know, hurting themselves, you know, doing those those crazy things that they did. Right. But it was like, hey, sure, from the movies, yeah, you know, I'm going to last forever on film, sure. <laughs> so, yeah, didn't, 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 didn't care about safety. What, this, this, I'm intrigued by this. What is the, um, what's a, what's an unexpected, truly unexpected influence on horror movies from someone who's out of horror movies. Have you talked to other directors where they're like, oh, Capra is the one, or Orson Welles did this, or like, what's an influence outside horror that influences horror? Boy, you would have to ask the other guys, pretty much. Um, For you, it's Capra, Chaplin? Yeah, yeah, it's it's like trying, I mean, here it is kind of in in a nutshell, you know, where's the humanity? 
you know, where's yeah. the love? And as much as that sounds, you know, corny, it's like that you've got to have that relatability so that when right. you're looking at somebody, it's like, I get them, you know, and you want to find actors who, if you've written it, you know, or you obviously know the part well enough as the director that you cast the right person that can, you know, I mean, that's 95% of, of having a good actor is the casting. You right. get somebody who just dead on knows how to do that. And it makes the job, you know, so much easier. Then if you can kind of push them a little bit, you know, it's like, well, I don't do comedy very well. You know, go, sure you do. Just say this without, you know, any, any you know, sense of humor about it or whatever, you know, we're all gonna die. You know, and, and it, you know, you can get a laugh. Right. I mean, and it's, right. it's just, the you know, just flat, just make it. So you don't, you try to find those people that are smart enough, they can kind of understand those directions, but there's something about them that you just inherently love. And then you give a kind of a wise ass thing to a kid, like in uh, Jason, like, you know, so who are you gonna be when you grow oh, up? You right. know, I mean, something like that always gets, you know, a huge laugh totally, because yeah, totally. he was the kid that didn't say anything while his brother was the one that was, you know, always saying, you know, right. we're dead meat or all this stuff. And finally, you know, the little one pipes in with that, <laughs> you know, and then he, you know, and the older one does an intended little rascals, you know, click of the head and turn, you know, like a <laughs> you know, and I mean, again, that's borrowing from, you know, the yeah. Hal Roach comedies, you know, that time. And all that stuff is just sort of like, in me right. so it kind of just kind of comes out naturally but the other you know directors i mean certain people just you know they love david lean like spielberg did so wow. you get this these epic you know moving incredible camera work kinds of things sure. and somebody else it's like you know they you know what cronenberg's influences must have been with the medical things and all that stuff and right. uh, uh, Wes Craven I was very fortunate with the uh, Masters of Horror that one night sit next to him and just talk about oh. what he wanted to do and what I did and you know and then he, at one point he goes you know I want to have your career and I go no fucking way <laughs> are you kidding doing TV movies and all this stuff he said look at all the different genres you got to do right. I had to do Freddy, right. and anything, you know, and then scream, right. and anything else they didn't want to hear from. And you, you know? could feel it. He would bust out a red eye, and yeah. the fans would shrug, unfortunately. And, and it was great. It yeah, was great. Yeah, it's amazing. You know? um, but it, it's like, I never thought of it that way. I mean, it's like, I said, you know, your name above the title. I mean, you know, like John Carpenter, you know, Wes right. Craven and stuff. Right. And he goes, yeah, but artistically, I'd like to be able to, you know, have somebody pay for me doing things that I want to try you know, right. and do. And that was the one advantage about doing all these TV movies and cable movies that I did is every time the next one came along, I just chose a different genre from true crime to sure. a Christmas movie, you know, to a psychological thriller, right. to some, you know, uh, you know, just strange character relationship piece. So I got a chance to try a whole bunch of different things because I always felt, you know, as, a, as an artist and as a filmmaker, you want to go in with these challenges. Don't take the easy way. You right. know, it's like, oh, every movie I do it like this. Uh, to me, that's, there's, you know, there's no pushing yourself, you know, unless you right. have to do that. Well, what an advantage for teaching as well mm -hmm. to have experienced all the other genres. What was the hardest one? Of all hardest challenge. Yeah, the hardest challenge. Oh, God. Um... Well, there was a couple of things that ended up, you know, coming out, you know, much better than, than I expected. Um, I, I did this movie in, uh, uh, God, I can't remember the year now, but we, we shot it in, uh, in North Carolina. And um, it 
it basically was a you know true crime about uh, the Peterson William Peterson character and uh, Treat Williams played, and it was just really difficult through the the whole process. You know, he had a way of, he wanted to do it. I had a way I was doing it, and we kind of you know we're always banging heads. And I didn't know what we were going to get at the end of the day, but when it all came together, you know, he gave an amazing performance. You know, wow. it all kind of worked. So there's there's that kind of difficulty that can you know ha sometimes happen just in terms of people on a different page than you are. Um, and oh, God, it, there's you know I can name a bunch of people, but I you know it's sort of like I don't want to say that they you know were really difficult. They just <laughs> right, right, right. they were thinking differently. You know. <laughs> right. Um, and I've had people like, uh, I did a, I was supposed to, this would have been a great war story had it happened, but, um, I refused doing any more, uh, TV movies at a certain point in my career. I said, that's it. I'm done. You know, and I had to leave CAA to make my point and went with William Morris agency. Cause they said, you know, look, we're going to work on your director's career. You know, you're going to make something happen. And. Of course, I sat there for a year, you know, nothing right, happened. And then finally I got a call from the guy, Steve Glick in the television area and he goes, I know you don't want to do TV movies and all that stuff. Would you want to direct a movie with Marlon Brando? <laughs> Excuse me? <laughs> and he goes, no, seriously, he saw some of your work. He's got a movie he wants to do It's for television. Um, he would like you to go over to his house and guys meet and talk if you want to do that. And I went, I want to take that meeting, that's for damn sure. Yeah. And it was, it was like, you know, three hours with Colonel Kurtz or the Godfather, you know. Wow. You know just, hey, have some more sushi. Have some sushi there. Come on, you skinny kid. Let's eat. <laughs> and just, you know, he was a genius in that his, his yes. brain would take you from place to place to place. You would ask a question and he would just go off on all these other tangents, but then get back to the answer you know right it was just amazing and at a certain point he suddenly decided that he wanted to switch roles with so that he wasn't playing the father he was playing the younger character mm -hmm. and uh i want him on the back of a motorcycle throwing toilet paper to the pool <laughs> and of course cbs went nope you know so that right. was it and we were already like in toronto we were scouting locations everything wow. was happening and suddenly we lost brando so the next person in line that they were, you know, open to was Donald Sutherland. Mm -hmm. And I, you know, I've loved his work and stuff. I had no idea of, you know, what kind of person he was because I heard that he could be difficult. Mm -hmm. But the exact opposite was true. I mean, we got together for dinner every night, talked about the next day's work. You know, he would try something on the set. I'd go, oh, great, how about if we do this? We'd still be up there doing takes of stuff. <laughs> wow. He was just so creative and you just had to, follow his rules, which was nobody smoking. Not, he doesn't want to smell it on the clothes that you went outside and had a cigarette. Okay. You know, if he was in a hotel room where people smoked, they'd have to repaint it. You know, right. that was like one of his big things. He wanted the camera to never be, you know, lower than where, you know, eye level is with him because yeah. he just didn't like that low angle, you know, look with it and, yeah. and, and certain types of lenses. You know, he didn't want anything wider than a 50. Right. And if you, if you maintain that, mm -hmm. he was incredible, you wow. know, and we just, it was just one of those great, you know, things. And I thought this could be a difficult picture. And I had a whole bunch of uh, mentally challenged people because he, mm -hmm. he ran a mentally challenged place. And I said, no, I want to have the real people in there. Right. So we had all these people that had no idea how they were going to be, but they were incredible, you know, wow. and the crew picture was just great because it's the crew mixed in with all these other oh, people with incredible. downs and all these things. And I thought that was a family. I mean, that was right. a, 
totally unique family. So every so often things that you think are going to be difficult, you know, end up being a real blessing. I love, I love yeah. the, it starts with Marlon Brando and yeah. he leaves and someone else comes in. You're like, uh-oh, this is going to be difficult. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> that's, a, that's an amazing, like, plot twist. Yeah. It's like, and it's not. It's not that difficult. He's got three rules. You follow them and everything's fine. He's a great clever. But, you know, if I, and I did my homework on Brando, too. I right. got in touch with every director you know that was still alive that he mm-hmm. had worked with and everybody told me the same thing you know go run don't walk <laughs> away from this he will pick on you he will find stuff in your past that he'll bring up in front of the crew he will tear you apart he hates directors other than Kazan you know Kazan's right. you know right. on, on a pedestal yeah. still but everybody else you know don't tell me what to do you know, and wow. and he would never learn his lines. You know, like obviously in The Godfather, he had cue cards yeah. all over the place. But then he got into this thing of having an ear monitor yeah. in his ear, and um, he had somebody off camera, you know, reading his lines as the other actor was talking. So he wasn't really listening; he right. was listening to what was coming in on the earphones. Jesus. And um, uh, Donald Sutherland said to me, you know, that he had done a movie with him, and he goes, "It was so difficult because." his hearing was starting to go, so they had to turn the monitor up. So you're giving your line, and all you hear is somebody saying his line, <laughs> answering what you're asking as you're asking. He said it was, it was just... impossible. Yeah. Oh, wow. But he, he had just basically burned up all his ability to kind of reach inside of himself yeah. and pull out his pain and use it, you know, yeah. father-mother relationships, yeah. you know, women relationships, whatever. Yeah. So he wanted to just have that sense of it just happening at the moment. You know, right. so I, I hear it and I respond. That that's it. It's also you know? a little lazy. <laughs> yeah, and right. he he also loved um, uh, props. You know, he was a very much you know sure. You know, like you know, he was like these uh, nail clippers, and so the whole scene I'm going to just be clipping my nails. And, <laughs> and I mean, he you know he wanted right. to like focus in on something other than the acting. You know, right. that was you know he was in a whole nother. That's so weird that he became so loathing of. I saw an interview with him with Dick Cavett. Mm-hmm. And it was perf- it was awkward. It was uncomfortable to watch mm-hmm. because you can tell that you have someone who Dick Cavett's not just an enthusiast about cinema, but like all things that he thinks are excellent. Like he he's a great interviewer, and he's just ready to like catch fire with you. And he's like acting whatever, and he's like acting is bullshit. Yeah. <laughs> like like whatever, and you're like wait what? And you could see almost the disappointment like yeah. settle over him. And I know he wasn't always like that, but like after he clicked over to that. Yeah, well, it, it happened whatever just before The Godfather because nobody wanted him in that Godfather in right. Paramount at all. Francis really had to fight for him, and then he had to put up with all this shit. Right. And then by the time they they got to um, you know Apocalypse, mm-hmm. now he wished to God he never met the man. Because <laughs> yeah. he went days and days and days behind. <laughs> Brando just didn't want to do what the script was. He wanted right. to come up with something else. So you know, but he. You know, as he said to me, you know, it's like I, I got to pay for all these fucking divorces and I got an island that I got to pay for. And, I, you know, so a million dollars, you know, a week. That was it. Whether he was late, you know, right. or not, you know, that was it. You get a million bucks. That's and, crazy. you know, that, this producer I had was willing to pay that, you know. Wow. And he's not even really trying. It's like the world's most expensive cameo. <laughs> I would have done it for <laughs> two, right. 200 bucks. <laughs> get out of here. There's a great, we, we had done an episode on um, uh, horror documentaries and there's the Island of Lost Souls, I think it's called. It's uh, about Richard Stanley. Oh, Dr. Moreau. Yeah, with him. yeah, exactly. And just 
the behind the scenes is is literally frightening. It's yeah. like he's psychologically torturing the people who are not ready for it because yeah. they're not even integral to what's happening. They're not the director. They're like lower. He's punching down, and yeah. it made me like. Like, what are you doing? Yeah. Because <laughs> you're such a great artist. Like, why, why, you know, behave? Is it standard practice to, when you're, when you're, when you have an actor of like a high level to just call director all around and just be like, tell me about like what it's like to work with this person? Is that, mean, or is that what you do? Or is that what a lot of people mean do? talking about somebody who's like a superstar? Yeah. yeah, how, yeah. how to well, react? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, the ones that are really great. Like I got to direct Lucille Ball, I got to direct you know Freddie Prince, and who was just mm -hmm. wonderful, mm -hmm. and uh, Carol Burnett on, when I was doing the Dick Van Dyke show with the right. comedies and stuff, and obviously Donald Sutherland, you know, was like that. The ones that are really good, and Martin Landau, you know, loved this oh. man, um, just ah, incredible. Yep. Uh, you know, basically you could give the most bonehead directing, you know, directing note to somebody like Martin Landau, mm -hmm. and you go, okay, that's good, and he would just change it into what, you know, the way he understood how to do the moment. Right. Not necessarily what you were doing, but he would just, you know, if you said to him, uh, 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 Marty, just faster, just faster. Right. So then he has to figure out, okay, why would this guy talk faster? You can't just talk faster to talk faster. There's got to be something. But he had the craft <laughs> to be able to do that. Wow. And a lot of the pros are like that. It's like, you know, very seldom does Spielberg and Woody Allen, all these people actually talk to the, these actors about the, the role right. they cast them because they knew they could do it and they're going to bring something and if it's not quite working he'll go in and you know ask a question and then the actor will, oh okay i can see what you're saying okay you know and that's usually the you know the way it happens it's the ones that kind of get you know famous too fast and they mm -hmm. haven't really got a craft yet and yes. so there's that insecurity i mean right. nobody's more insecure than than actors why not because they're assholes or anything. It's right. like, it is so hard to do what they do. Yeah, you know, right. a, you know, a grip comes over and he puts up a stand and raises a thing. It's like, yeah, there's work involved. There's patience. There's all that stuff. But an actor, it's like, you know, you do this scene and you think you've just, you know, really just exposed yourself and all that. And somebody goes over and says, let's do that same thing exactly like that. One, one more. Right. Why didn't that last one? work oh it's great it's great great we're gonna use it but let's just do one more and they go why do one more if you did <laughs> right. you know it's like okay uh, let me see you know and yet they got to try to find a way to get back to that right. moment that that reality with 80 people watching yep. you know and all the it is a hard friggin' job yeah so what do they do they pick on their motor homes not being big enough they pick on the fact mm. that why why is he getting served first why am i not getting i mean just right. all this stuff right. that you think they're just such babies but it's this insecurity that you know unfortunately is in the very job yeah it's built into it i i had seen a i saw a making of documentary of basic instinct and it was the first time i saw the screen test that sharon stone did and when you see her have to do that character but like just in a room mm -hmm. in a chair with like people dead staring her in the face and and you're like how do you even do that because yeah. there's moments in the scene where it's a stare down and it's so uncomfortable yeah <laughs> right and they can just do like that's it's pretty remarkable that they can do it yeah. sharon stone auditioned for me for One Dark Night, for the, the blonde girl that was in there. Oh, I have no recollection of it. I happened to see, <laughs> you know, the casting sheet of all the people that, right. you know, I saw that my friend Mike Haas kept. 
And I went, Sharon Stone came in? <laughs> oh, oh, my God, you know. And that, that happens, you know. Then they're starting early in their career. Sure. You know, wow. uh, David Duchovny came in for my uh, uh, Date with an Angel movie, you know. And wow. I, I loved his humor and stuff, but it wasn't just quite right. It was a little too smart-ass, you know, right. which is what he does so well. Mm -hmm. Totally. You know, so there's these times where you see people, you know, early on and have no idea. Hilary Swank was another one that we had on the series. And... They, they told me, you're going to love this girl. She was in the, you know, the next Karate Kid. She's really great. And I right. go, well, that doesn't mean anything to me, the next right. Karate Kid. And she came in, and she wasn't that good. She, you know, she was <laughs> just kind of okay. And right. the casting director said, look, she can be better than that. You know, give her some notes. Let her come back in. And I go, well, I really like Janet Elfman because I thought she was really funny. And it's like, she's great. She's great. We can go with her, but just give Hillary a second chance. All right. So, you know. Tellery comes in, having, you know, got the notes, getting the part, and she just blew poor <laughs> Miss Elfin out of the water. She was incredible. And you realize, you know, she has that all in her. And she was living in a car with her mom, you know, yeah. in the downtown L.A. Yeah. And anytime she'd talk to you about something, there was an intensity that you knew this girl was going to make it. Right. Never thinking three Oscars or whatever the hell she's gotten. I mean, right. they'd get to that level, but yeah. Right. But early on, you know, you really could see, you know, that certain people just, you know, have that, you know, I am going to do this, period. And it's got to be so frustrating to an actor to know they have it in them and know that they could also miss the chance to show they have it in yeah. them just by happenstance, right? Yeah. That's part of the dynamic that's why that Rick Dalton sequence where he's in the trailer beating him up on himself oh, yeah. right. the time is so is so powerful because then he goes out and nails it. But like the guy who was sitting next to the little actress, like she, she like always she, gonna crush it. Yeah, he, no, yeah, she's gonna be great. He's gonna be terrible. Yeah. <laughs> like totally rattled and insecure and like what, whatever it is. What makes a good director's note? Like how like how do you like when you're on set, you, you go for a take and it's not quite like what you want. How do you communicate that? with an actor to like help them like get what you were seeing. Yeah, I mean, that's really the, you know, the $50 million question. And I <laughs> ask that all the time, especially, you know, teaching, um, you know, directors and producers mm -hmm. and writers and actors and stuff, um, you know, what that relationship's like. Uh, I mean, first and foremost, to me, it's setting a tone, you know, that, you know, you come in and there's a, a sense of confidence that you know what you want. And, you know, when people say, well, you know, well, what's going on here? You know, ask the director. And you've got to have an answer. And the one thing I learned from Marty Scorsese once in an interview, he said, you know, sometimes the answer is, I don't know. You know, and I'm gonna, but I'm going to find out and I'll get right back to you. Right. It's just that, you know, you've got to be that point person that everybody can come to and get an answer of some sort. And hopefully if you've done your homework, you really do know exactly what you're talking about. And they're not going to suddenly blindside you with some question about something but then you know once you know you start letting them you know let, let's just try one you know you have any direction no let's just go with what you got so basically you're allowing the actor just to have the freedom of what they feel this character is sometimes that's so much better than what you thought you were going to have to direct them into that it's just like that's great you know mm. and that's all you need other times they've made some choice where they've made the words important and we don't do that in life, you know, unless you get very didactic and you don't want to listen to that person. Right. You know, we talk very fast. We don't know, I don't know what I'm going to come, you know, say next is going to come out of my mouth. So they've got to get it to that level that it just sounds just, you know, natural. So sometimes, yeah, there is a simple note about, you know, just go faster with that or, 
you got to pee really bad and you just want to get this conversation over so you can go, but you're not going to indicate any of that, but you just inside, it's like, let's, let's go. Come on. Let's just talk about, let's just get the deal done. You know, you might give some kind of crazy notion like that to get the result you want, but it's about not directing for results. He's happy. Let's just do this thing. Remember, you're happy. And it's like, how do you act happy? You know, fake. <laughs> you know, or the actor has to somehow translate that into, okay, the day my daughter was born. Wow. Okay. Uh, yeah, I'm good. Let's go. And then they bring that, you know, wow. into the scene. So it's it's a combination. If you work with actors who have different types of teachers, you know, the you know the Meisner technique compared to the Stanislavski technique compared right. to you know the natural type actor. You know, there's so many different ways they you know, a lot of actors come at it you have to somehow know a little bit about all these different techniques so that you can somehow, you know, orchestrate, you know, what you, what you want out of them. The tough thing comes that you've got three actors and they've all studied different types of acting. <laughs> one is about the first take. I am going to be brilliant on the first take and every one you do after that, I'm going to go down, you know. Right, Somebody right. else says, I'll be terrible on the first take. By the time you get to four or five, I've nailed it, you know. Right. And then it's like, I can't do exactly the lines. I'm going to give you something close because sure. you know somehow it's just going to sound too stiff so you put three of these people together Jeez. and trying to get this to work you know is maddening you know wait, wait. okay wait now i gotta know do you do you game this out in advance like these four people are going to be amazing together or do you just get the best person for each individual role and make it work we try in casting to get the best you possibly can and lots of times you don't know what their background is you don't know right. you know their real you know what they need to feel comfortable on the set. Right. But to me, that's, again, the director's job to go in there, you know, keep the set quiet so that it's not like yelling and screaming and, you know, stuff, so that they feel cocooned in this world where they can be free to go in and grab sometimes really dark emotions. Yeah. I mean, for whatever anybody felt about, you know, Valerie Bertinelli from One Day at a Time and all that stuff she did, mm -hmm. When we did this film called uh, Murder of Innocence, and she had to play a character that was schizophrenic, uh, psychotic, uh, what's it, was, she was schizophrenic, obsessive compulsive, and manic depressive. And it's not like you play those things, but you just put yourself in a space where when I do close on her eyes, I don't know what she was pulling from, but she looked like a terrified animal at right. times. And there were things that we had her do that she was just, flat out, you know, willing to do. Wow. And I mean, this, and this is like a TV movie for CBS. And like there was one scene where she had to be, you know, totally naked on a floor at a dorm, college dorm, covered in raw meat, you know. <laughs> and I thought, is Valerie Bertinelli, the princess of television, going to do right? this? Yep. You know, and wow. she got down there and she, you know, and she did it. And then so many things that were just, you know, really difficult. Sure. And at the end of the, the that piece, she has to go into a first grade classroom and shoot children, right. which is what Laurie Dan, the real character, did. Right. And both of us had huge problems with that idea. So Natural. I came up with a solution, which is you're not doing this. This little girl who was teased and had and I built in this thing where she kept clenching her hand like as a little kid when she got bothered. Mm -hmm. And so when we got to that scene, you know, it was this little girl and I'd cut to, you know, the little girl's hand clenching and then you heard, Pow! you know, so you only ended up seeing the aftermath, which was not that bloody or gory, right. but that she was someplace else when she was doing this. And that made it to, for us okay to do. Right. 
that being said, this was a Sunday night CBS movie. They were so afraid of it at a time when sure. Senator Paul, I think it was Paul Simon, actually, uh, the, not the, the right. singer, <laughs> right. but the senator, yes. you know, was going, you know, now television movies are corrupting people. So CBS got afraid, put right. it on Wednesday night, no publicity. But I still feel it's like one of the most incredible roles she's ever done. Okay. And I'm very proud of the movie because it, it, wow. I tried to filmatically do you know, schizophrenia and, right. you know, obsessive compulsive and in the cutting, you know, of right. it. So oh, wow. it, it's, uh, you know, you, you find from certain actors, you, you never expect them to have that kind of depth you know, on something. so cool. And somebody else uh, like uh, Diana Rigg, who I had oh, the hots amazing. for, you know, all through the Avengers and all the rest of, of that. You know, she, you know, somehow she wasn't that into this, you know, I was doing a version of Turn of the Screw, the, mm -hmm. the Innocence over there. Yeah. And she was just sort of phoning it in and being very theatrical. Oh. And I had to keep coming in and giving her notes, uh, you know, and she would just look at me like, you know, <laughs> you know who I am, Dame Diana right, Rigg. Right, right. But she eventually did it. She eventually, oh. you know, stopped being theatrical about it and, you know, just did it. And I don't know if she was doing that because she didn't care or that she was just you know, being lazy sure. and just kind of, you know, going with whatever. And but sometimes, you know, that becomes a very hard job to take somebody right. that's like, what am I going to, how am I going to give a note to this person? Well, she was getting brandolitis. <laughs> <laughs> for, for sure, right? Well, she showed up. She was total pro. She was, you know, all that stuff. But again, it's just the choices, you know, for how yeah. you portray the character, you know, somebody else might have been fine. Let's print it, go, you know, yeah. but she I just wasn't really unorthodox in interviews or she came off as really unorthodox in interviews. She had unusual answers to, to basic questions. Yeah. She didn't give cliche answers. So I can see, yeah. <laughs> I can imagine her being, that's really, so I, I saw a documentary on baseball of all things. I'm not a big uh, baseball person at all, but um, there was a moment where they described the physics of it. And they were like, if you think about the physics of trying to accomplish hitting a ball going 100 miles an hour with something this thick and like it's not even doable. The more you talk about film directing, more I feel like it's not even possible. I know there's like more things you got to plug in <laughs> well, and like because, delegate. Because you we've only really drilled down on the acting part of it, but mm -hmm. you you're doing that for everyone else on the set, right? Like you're doing it for the people that cinematographer and you're doing it for the music and you're doing it for like I can't even fathom. Well, it, it you know, it's not for me, it's not that hard if you, for one, have a working knowledge about what they have to do to accomplish things, how long certain mm -hmm. things take, and so on. Right. But more importantly, when you're reading the script, I try to have a point of view about the whole, you know, movie. Right. I mean, perfect, you know, examples like, you know, E.T. You know, you never really saw the adults until Peter Coyote, you know, came in and was a principal. You only saw them kind of from a kid's perspective or E.T.'s perspective. Right. Even when they weren't in the scenes, but you saw keys and feet and hands and stuff. Yep. You know, Spielberg went in with a particular point of view. I try to, like, look at, like I was talking about Murder of Innocence, that I want the film to feel like inside of Valerie's head. Right. So every department that I talk to go, make the lighting a little more jagged, more, make this a little darker, a little, wow. you know, make the composition a little off center, you know, so you're trying to make every element feed into this overall look or theme, you know, or tone sure. with it. And once people, you know, lock into that, they come to you and go, how about this idea? And you go, that's great, let's do that, you know? And I yes. love when everybody's contributing because you want to hire people smarter and faster yeah. and, right. and just, you know, more creative than you right. because it, A, it's going to make you look better. And second, 
it becomes our movie. It's not just this oh, is what so the director cool. wants. This is his movie. You know, right. it's like I want to hear people say, you know, what we can do for this. You know, and it it's just great that everybody feels like you know they own a part of this they're going to be proud to have their name on it right. not just it, you know it's another job and you know i'll get through it what the hell so <laughs> you remarkable. know and i think it's so that, crucial it's like you were saying about it getting everyone to paint on the same canvas mm -hmm. and have mm -hmm. like a coherent work of art come out i, I mean that's just remarkable to, to think about it and coordinate it but i love the idea of giving them a theme to work off so their brain and their creativity steers into mm -hmm like a direction like no we're gonna do a little repulsion here because you know it's like they're gonna go oh yeah that's that's, that's really incredible <laughs> yeah i mean the one thing i try to do with actors is have a dinner you know because lots of times you can't get them up for rehearsals right because you have you know producers have to pay more to bring them in early and yeah. you know they don't want to pay the money so it's like can i at least have a dinner with them right it's all right, right we can do that so the, you know <laughs> and in that dinner you know we'll talk about everything other than the role you know, right. story, I'll open up about my childhood. Yeah, my mother yeah. had a mental breakdown when I was 11. What? Oh yeah, my, whole, I, my childhood just went away. Suddenly I had to be the head of the house, wow. you know, because my father had to work and it, and, and suddenly it's like, you know, I had a, you know what happened with me? And suddenly people would start opening up about all these different things. So I'm, you know, taking all right. that in and going, okay, <laughs> you know, and I'm not gonna like use that, right. but I can bring up situations that that you know personal that they could understand and relate to sure. you know if it made sense you know for that sure. kind of a thing or like you know when i did the unsaid with andy garcia you know this is a very serious movie very dark movie right. but when we got together all we talked about was comedy you know <laughs> and i actually got hired because he goes yeah i want to do a comedy with you one day right and so wow. it's like uh -huh. it made him feel comfortable so i mean sometimes those weird things happen where you just want to feel you can trust this person and you have you know similar likes right. but every so often when somebody gives you some bit of information and you can somehow you know skew it you know when you're giving that direction sort of so it touches upon that right. that they and you know they understand that because you know they've given you that that part of themselves that maybe they wouldn't have talked about you know before right. and it's also leading by example it's not it's it's i'm not going to ask you to do something i won't do myself because you're exposing a little personal information yourself and they're inevitably going to be doing that at yeah. some point when they're pulling on exactly stuff. You're, yeah you're like we're no, no we're all doing this here <laughs> which is that's kind of mind-blowing yeah. you me you want them just to be as vulnerable as possible as right. as tuned in you know as, as you can possibly do and all the distractions you know don't distract them they're just they're they're in the head of that character right. and they're committing to that and one of my favorite things is when i say cut and I, you know, and I look over at the actor and they're just sort of like, you know, how was that? Right. You know, they just went there. Right. You know, Bonnie Bedelia used to call it, oh, that was church. That was church. Oh, that's <laughs> yeah. You gotta I love, love that. that. And you know, she was right. right. She, she could actually stand next to herself and know when something just worked. You know, she that's, was that accomplished. That's um, so cool. cool. That's yeah. church. Yeah. <laughs> That's, that's amazing. I, I feel like that should be the end of this. Yeah, that's church. <laughs> it's church. That's church. I love that. That's incredible. Well, this was great. This yeah, was that's, fun. I, 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 my mind is blown. I'm just so. I, I could what, go on for an hour. What, like so, seven what, hours. so for the listeners, the the Blu-ray for Jason Lives is coming up in coming October. out in October. Yeah. How yeah. else can they support you? Look for things that are coming. Like what what what, what can? How do people help you accomplish more? Okay. Well, the you know the big thing which. Obviously, none of us know what's going to happen is right. the, the next Friday the 13th. And as a lot of people oh. know, I wrote, you know, another 
script yeah. mm-hmm. called uh, Jason Never Dies. And it's set in the winter. You know, it's an all-female cast. These girls are classic, smart-ass type characters. Right. Never heard about Jason before, you know, when they came into this situation. So they're not going to be savvy like the kids were in Jason Lives. Right. And it's basically 13 years, because I'm very much about trying to find these somewhat, you know, supernatural mythic things that can happen. Definitely. 1999, okay. you know, that, you know, that he comes back. He comes back mm-hmm. and, you know, he comes back from where I left him. Um, okay. So it, it's sort of, you know, a sequel to mine, but it also kind of is a standalone piece that if you never saw mine, it still would work for okay. a modern audience. And if you are a huge Friday fan, you'll see so many things that, you know, it's like, you know, that are references to things that, you know, right. you know, that, you know, that you're hip to and trying to make the kills, all that stuff, you know, unique. Definitely. But the main thing is about, you know, setting up, you know, these, again, likable, but for a whole different reason of likable, right. you know, and they're, you know, in, in high school. So they're even younger, you know, than okay. before. So right. um, there's, a, there's a little more uh, brittleness to, the, to yeah. the humor and stuff. Um, so that, you know, I've written, um, I've got some incredible storyboards of the concept, which I'm finally going to be actually releasing these concept things, oh, which will be on that cool. DVD or oh, Blu-ray beautiful. coming out. So okay. I, I, you know, when they asked me about that, I went, I don't want to give it away. You know what? <laughs> I want people to see this, you know, good yeah. or bad, whatever the reaction is. Right. I do, you know, kind of like to it's hear, you know, bad. the feedback. You got your texture with the snow. Right. I think everything looks better in the snow. <laughs> Batman Begins, yes. 30 Days of Night. You put, yeah. and I think, I think taking, a, taking a horror icon and putting him in the snow, there's something, there's something creepy about snow because everything gets real silent. Well, think of this too with the mask. When he breathes, that, that oh. fog, oh, you know, coming out is just really cool. Back, I mean, there's Why the, am I not watching this movie I right know. now? <laughs> As soon as the lawsuit's over, I think I think LeBron. I think there was a rumor that LeBron James wanted to produce one, so we just gotta get. Now he's in LA. We're Ohio boys. We'll get him on the hook. Yeah, we yeah. know him. We'll get him on the horn. We <laughs> do yeah. not. Well, know. You know, I, it, it, funny you should say that because literally my lawyer just sent that script to him. You oh. know, the, the, my Fingers script. Crossed. You know, oh. I don't know if there's shit he can do about it. Um, I know there was also I think Victor Miller who won the lawsuit initially. Mm-hmm. You know, so he has the rights to remake. You know, his Friday the 13th, uh, he's considered, you know, the first one, but he doesn't have Jason. You don't know if there's shit he can do about it. He did to the Golden State Warriors what you did to the Volkswagen Beetle. He can do this. <laughs> <laughs> if anyone can stake the Warriors, they can do anything. I forget where I was going to go. With that. Oh, we've had, a, it's, it's, it, we've had this weird... Because we just started picking up doing interviews again. We did interviews when we first started, and then we sort of went away. Because I don't know why, and then and then we just started bringing up like, interviews. But we've randomly had this weird Jason through line with all of our interviews. Because so we did. We talked to Aaron Coons from Scare Package. He had a Jason tattoo. He was like, "Oh my God, I love Jason List." Then we we talked to Todd Farmer, writer Jason X on on Tuesday, mm-hmm. and I have you here. So I feel like the, what what makes sense is I'll get I'll just pitch Victor Miller and be like, <laughs> "So like imagine Jason in the snow," <laughs> and we'll get him on the hook. You know, we'll we'll just. We'll figure something out. Well, Ocean's Eleven it and get it. It's really hard for those of us who know, you know, Victor well and 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 Sean. I mean, not like buddy buddies, but I sure. mean, you know, we obviously know what each other has done and where. Right. So it's really hard to say, you know, who's right and who's wrong. Right. Right. But you know, it's more than just the money. I mean, because there's plenty of money 
for the rest of their lives and their children, I'm sure their children's children. Totally. But it's, it's like a personal you know, war between them yep. at this point yeah. about, I want all the eggs. No, I want all the eggs. And right. somehow somebody's got to compromise at some point. So, right. you know, whenever that happens, you know. I feel like the gun media, the, the game, the company who made the, the game, they really got the bad end of that stick. Yeah. <laughs> right yeah. As that game came out, the thing happened and just yeah. stopped everything. But sometimes those things pick up their own momentum and it gets really weird. There's a great moment and there's a Charles Dickens novel, Bleak House, where it opens and there's this guy and he's going to a court and the court case has been running for two generations. <laughs> he's literally a third generation yeah. to go represent this, you know, 140 year old running case. And they're like, why are we doing this? He's like, I don't know, but I'm not going to lose. <laughs> and it becomes this thing. Like, it's well, just I think, really... I think, I think the visual of Jason, the snow and the fog, the, the, oh, the, the breath, I know. that's enough to sell almost anyone. Well, and also rolling the age back to the high school age, which is amazing. And, it's the person that just lives. I mean, and then also when you think about the fact that, it, you know, the, it, the if you t- if you ask the typical horror fan if they were being honest, if they were using their inner voice, right? And you're like, okay, there's going to be another Friday. What are the odds that it's going to be something you're going to love or it's going to be great? I think all of them are going to feel like coin flip, right? Because there's been so much hit or miss, not just in the movies, not just mo- but also moments in the movies and how the timing of them where this movie would have been great if it came out eight years ago, but not like they're all this dialogue in their head. And now like, this is a sure thing. Yeah. This has got to happen now. That's our goal. There's one one thing I'll share with you guys, because I love you guys. You're so great (laughs) that I don't don't think I've told anybody of this yet, Um, which is, you know, obviously it's snow, obviously it's the winter. So what happens to Crystal Lake? Oh, I didn't even think of that. Frozen over. So who's down there? (laughs) So the way he gets out is going to be quite interesting. And the one thing that no one has done yet is Jason going after a victim across Crystal Lake and trying to get your footage and stuff. And he's coming. And it's like, holy shit. And they're, you know, getting up and falling and getting, you know. So it's, you know, it's it's something that we haven't seen yet. And it writes itself, there's going to be an icicle kill. Right, <laughs> At some right, point in yeah, time, yeah, there's got to be an be icicle kill. Or and kids played actual hockey on the ice. <laughs> <laughs> this is amazing. Well, no, there's I, your comment. But the, I think the thing is, that's you're right. I mean, the, just the visual of it, you just said it, and I'm seeing visuals. And I this, I have... <laughs> I haven't seen this movie, but I'm seeing visuals. That's crazy. Mm-hmm. You're right. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's remarkable. This is perfect. And one quick, one quick, one quick, one quick plug. Yes. The Sloss, my band. Yes, yes, yes. Come oh. back from the back from the grave, which is the name of our album. Um, yeah. So go on YouTube and you know just look up the Sloss, the band, not the cute little furry animals with three toes, um, and you'll kind of see the other side of my personality, which I never expected I would be doing in my 60s what I did back in the 60s when I was a teenager. <laughs> so, you know, I'm, I'm pushing it to the edge of the envelope, but to oh, me, that's awesome. what you got to do is pursue your dreams, guys. Whenever they happen, you don't know when it's going to be, but go for it, because sometimes, they, you know, they happen at the most unbelievable time in your life. That's but, you know, never give, it a, never give them up. That's amazing. Oh, what, that's what is the... So t- just give, uh, like, the, the brief thing of the slots. So the slots is how many people... Yeah, it's a, it depends. <laughs> uh, when, when we tour, sometimes it's five of us or sometimes it's just four of us. Okay. Um, but basically, yeah, we were a Sunset Strip group in, you know, the, the beginning of the whole Sunset Strip scene, mm-hmm. you know, with the, the birds, um, love, um, 
anybody that kind of played then in those, of course, the big one is the Doors. Sure. You know, we were in a battle of the bands with the Doors. They won. We wow. came in second. You know, and I mean, all these things that, that happened during that time period um, were just amazing. But we were kids. I mean, we were underage, but we were still playing these clubs. And then the band kind of fell apart. And, you know, literally 40-something years later, we find out that this little 45 called Making Love, which no record label would play or, or record station would play because making love you couldn't say on the air um so <laughs> it just you know there was like maybe a hundred of these 45s made and forgotten about then we learned in 2011 that one of them sold on ebay for 6650 bucks wow. so all these music geeks you know started going who are these guys are they still alive what are, you know and so, you know, we found out that it was like a kind of a cult hit of garage band, you know, songs of that period that wasn't really attached to anybody, you know, in terms of the rights. So, you know, they had all these things they could put on these, you know, whether they call them uh, nuggets, I think was one of them. And then there was another series literally called Back from the Grave of, you know, I think it went up volume 10 or something of all these kind of unreleased songs. And they had some interviews with us. We, you know, we got to see each other after all these wow. years. And then, you know, I said, you know, what would it be like to get together in a garage again? You know, it's like, you kidding? It's like, why not? I mean, well, you know, and that started, we went, you know, into a garage in Tahunga where the drummer lived. We started, <laughs> you know, jamming. We were terrible. But after about six, seven months, we got brave enough to say, let's do a club gig. Right. You know, but we did it in San Diego, figuring... You know, if we fail, you know, no one's going to know. <laughs> Nobody thought about cell phones. So, of course, <laughs> you, know, we, you know, we got taped and went on, and suddenly the band just kind of took off. It's like, here's all these, you know, old fucks that are going back and playing harder and, you know, oh, you know more, more intense than they ever did when they were kids. And it just led to something like, I don't know, 300 gigs, I think, we've done. We did oh, an wow. album, music videos, you know all this crazy stuff uh, I've got you know one of my Chapman students you know editing a, you know a music video right now to one of our songs because we can't get back together right. but you know they're you know kind of cutting together all the things from 2020 and the song that we did called I want a new life um, so with you know images of us doing that song so it you know it gives us a sense to, of kind of being relevant and you know now yeah. and still you know using the music that kind of were all born out of those mid 60s so oh. it you know it's a strange career which you know pays funny. nothing but it's great to do but you're having a blast so yeah. so wait a minute can I, I mean it, there's like a glitch in the simulation right a band called The Sloss, 40 years between albums. Yeah. <laughs> Get the hell out of here. Yeah. First of all, that's amazing just yep. in and of itself. Right? <laughs> and then the fact that like you bring this back and, and the, the, the 45s, uh, uh, is mind-boggling to me that this is even a possibility that anyone could do after all that time passed. Yeah, because yeah. it was a different era. Like the cassette tape would have withered right. away or something right, like that right, would yeah. have lasted. Yeah, and like and I love stories like this. One of my favorite musicians is uh, a guy named Rocky Erickson, and he's... Oh, uh, I know. We probably were Rocky Erickson. What? We played with Rocky. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Because his comeback story was remarkable, yeah. right? Yeah. Like, what was it like to play with him? Just, 
It was great. I mean, you know, we did, I mean, so many of these bands, like the Standells and all these people from that era, right. you know, we do these, these, we did this thing called uh, uh, Ponderosa Stomp in New Orleans, <laughs> and it was all these acts that had like one-hit wonders and things, right. and you know, you're all getting together and you're looking at each other going, what the hell happened? All these, you know, <laughs> <laughs> we all like become our parents, you know? Right. But everybody just, when they got on stage, you just were back to where you were back in the day and, and wow. doing it. So. Yeah, it, it was amazing. You know, everybody just like, you know, steps up to the plate and, and, right. and does it. And for a, a generation that never saw like performing rock and roll acts, it was like right. a huge thing, you know, because sure. you have to pay a lot to go see the Stones perform. You know? <laughs> right, so, right. you know, here it's like we're in bars and, you know, club venues and all this stuff. And it's like up close and personal. And I do on stage magic stuff, special effects. Um, oh. you know, costume changes to make it seem like period, you know, things oh. depending on songs. So I oh. try to give you, you know, an entire show, you know, in some, you know, dive bar. <laughs> but to me, that's like kind of rock and roll. It's like, um, <laughs> His right. texture. Yeah. It's all over the place. That's, that's it's texture. That's yeah, come here, feel this. Feel this. Feel this. this. That's amazing. And I mean, you've directed horror movies, and they, what'd you say? They paid 6,600, They couldn't go one more to make it 660? <laughs> That's what I'm thinking. What is wrong with these? Throw leaves? it okay. in there. <laughs> <laughs> that is amazing. Okay, yeah. so, so you, can, yeah. you can download these, you can support you can the see, band, you can. Yeah, yeah, the, the sloss.org. Okay. Um, sloss.org has all of our stuff you know, on it. Amazing. And then, as I said, you know, YouTube, you know, you find. You know, good performances, bad performances. <laughs> Everybody tapes everything, and it's right. on there. So you know, oh, the, the, uh, the awesome. music videos are, are cool, and a lot of you know of the Friday people who are doing fan films now. You right. know, putting our music you know in there. Deborah Voorhees, you know, who directed <laughs> Fanboy Thirteen. She's taking our song Haunted for her. You know, oh, her wow. piece. Um, you know, we had something in Ven two things. No, one thing in Vengeance, and then in the uh, Amityville Murders. You know, which was like the prequel. Uh, Dan put in two songs in in that particular wow, film. So wow. it's sort of like we're having this like you know horror audience hearing us, but not even realizing you know that like I'm the lead singer in, in the group. <laughs> wow, so. that is so remarkable. I can't even wrap my brain around that. That is something that happens. That's that's absolutely amazing. Jesus. All right. Thank you for joining us. Okay. Support thank you guys. I had a ball. This is amazing. Thank you so much. Cheese.